me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Isn't it great just to sing about Jesus? Isn't it great just to talk about how great he is? Oh, it's wonderful because throughout the week I need to be reminded constantly that Jesus is the only one I need. He is the one who rescues me and gives me hope. Exodus chapter 32. I don't know when's the last time you heard a sermon on the golden calf, but you about to. It's an ugly scene, but it's also really, really good when you get down to it. Exodus chapter 32. We've been walking through Exodus bit by bit. We've seen the goodness of God as the creator. We've seen the goodness of God as the deliverer. And today we're going to see the goodness of God as a provider. Because what we see in the midst of one of the ugliest scenes in Israel's history is you still see God providing for his people. Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. I'm going to ask you if you're physically able. I know we've been doing the church aerobics. We're going to do it one more time. Exodus chapter 32, I'm going to ask you if you can, stand with me. We do this because we honor God's word. We love it. And so we stand up as we are able to. If you're not able to, it's fine. But Exodus chapter 32, verses 1, and let's go to verse 14. How about that? I think we can cover it. Moses writes and says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron And said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people who... ...whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves... They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Verse 11. 
But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we study this this morning, you would give us wisdom, help us to see the truth, help us to see your glory. And Father, I pray most of all that we will see Jesus Christ as the king that we desperately need. Teach your people by your word, God. I ask you to feed your sheep, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated for a little while. This is an interesting story, just so you know. Because in this story, we see a few things. And so I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to go ahead and give you my outline real fast. Number one, I'm going to show you how great the people's rebellion was. So if you're taking notes, number one is look how great the rebellion of the people. Number two, we're going to see God's indictment of the people. We're going to see God's indictment of the people. And number three, we're going to see the mediator God provides. The mediator God provides. Now, I want you to remember that over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this beautiful thing called covenant. This is where God joins together with his people in a relationship with them. And God promises to bless his people if they are obedient and follow after him. And then he also says there will be cursings if they don't. And on the heels of all of that, we've seen God do some great things, right? God has heard the cry of his people in Egypt who are under slavery to Pharaoh. God hears their cries. He delivers them out of Egypt. They get stuck against the Red Sea. They're fearful that they're going to die. God helps them, delivers them from the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea, allowing them to go forward. Then we see them come to the foot of the mountain in Sinai in the wilderness, and we find that God actually meets with Moses, and he provides the Ten Commandments, he provides his words to his people to say, here's who I am, and here's how to love me, and here's how to follow me, and if you do that, I will love you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's a great picture. God just continuing to deliver over and over and over again people who don't deserve it. And so you would think after all that greatness, they would finally go, we got it. We're going to follow God forever. We're never going to stray again. We're going to do exactly what he says. But in fact, they don't even wait for Moses to come down from the mountain before they're already blowing it again. Oh, you know I'm getting charged up, don't you? See, you know. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. How could these people rebel? After what God has done for them, how could they so quickly turn away from him? Before we start wagging our finger at the Israelites... We need to realize we do the exact same thing, how quickly we rebel. And oh, the good news that God has done what is necessary. So I want you to see the picture, first of all, the great rebellion of the people. Boy, they are not just violating covenant. They are violating covenant. 
Notice what it says in these opening verses, verses one through six. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, which by the way, that's all it takes for people to start going astray is make us wait for something. Make us be patient. Oh, I'm telling you what, don't make me sit in the drive-thru longer than I think I should have to, right? Don't ever, because I will rebel. I will no longer follow the rules. I've seen it at Chick-fil-A a thousand times. If you make people wait, they will violate rules. They will cut you off. They will cut in line, do whatever is necessary. Don't make us wait for something because we are going to rebel. That's right. And here we go. We've got the people of God already rebelling against him because they are impatient. Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Notice that what they're asking for is something to bring satisfaction to them that they feel is lacking in God. They're not satisfied with him, so let us make some other gods who we can be satisfied in. What they're expressing is a dissatisfaction with God, and not only with God, they're dissatisfied with Moses. He has delayed coming down to us, so we will make our own gods. Just so you know, what separated Israel out from the other nations? Say it again. Well, that's true. That's, that's ultimately true. But what worship-wise set them apart from the other religious systems they were around? One. Notice what the people asked for. Make, everybody catch that? Make us gods. Guess what they want to be? Like everybody else. It, we're not satisfied with this one God anymore. Let's go make ourselves gods that we can follow after. They'll go before us. Notice how quick, they are God's people. God rescued them, said he was going to be their God. They're going to be his people. He made all these promises. He's going to bless them. He's going to do great things for them. And guess what? All it takes is Moses being delayed coming down the mountain. They're like, enough of that God. Let's go after these other gods. Maybe they'll do what we say. Maybe they will satisfy us. Notice how quickly that dissatisfaction turns into absolute rebellion. They say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, I love how they put that too, by the way. As for this Moses guy, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, here's the thing. How about you just wait and see? Just wait. You'll see. He's meeting with God. He'll be, he'll be dissatisfied. With this Moses guy, we've moved on. And how quickly the people of God have disregarded God's rescue of them. How quickly they have moved on. And what God's been doing all throughout Exodus is showing us who he is. That he is the redeemer. He is the rescuer. He is the provider. But oh, how quickly they turn away from him. And what we see before us in these opening verses of Exodus 32 is the guilt of Israel. The sinfulness of humanity is on full display. The people pursue unrighteousness because they do not wish to worship this God anymore. So how do they do it? How do they demonstrate their rebellion? They gather together to Aaron and they tell Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings. Uh-oh. Okay. Not, uh, 
I want you to notice the plan that they have here. Make us gods. And so even though God had provided all they needed, even though God had entered into a covenant relationship with them, even though God had delivered them from Pharaoh, the sinfulness of humanity is clear because they immediately say, make us a calf. Make us an idol to worship. The author of the Psalm of Psalm 106 tells us they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. What, what prompts the people to make this idol? They had forgotten their Savior. They had forgotten what God had done for them. They had totally turned aside. And in an act of cosmic treason, the Israelites give glory due to God to a metal image instead. There is one thing you cannot walk away from Exodus 32 with, any idea that they were innocent, that they didn't deserve to be punished. Not only were the people active in their rebellion, but what we see in verse 2 and 3 is that Aaron participates and actually leads the people into sin. Who comes up with the plan? Aaron initiates the plan. He calls for them to bring about their gold earrings. And he's going to pool all their gold, which, by the way, are things they brought up out of Egypt. Things that were supposed to be used for worship of God. And here they're found making an idol out of it. And Aaron receives the gold, and we're told he fashions it or shapes it into a golden calf. And then Aaron not only does that, but then he calls for an altar to be built and for a feast to take place the next day. There is no doubt when you read this that the Israelites are full-on rebellion against God. A.W. Pink says it was an inexcusable, open, blatant, united idolatry. The ones who were supposed to lead the people of God in worship of him alone are actually found leading them into rebellion. Aaron and his sons were supposed to lead the people as priests in worship to God. And guess what? They're not only found being a part of it, they are leading active rebellion. Whew, that is some guilt. And together in verse 4, look what they proclaim. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's what they proclaim together. And in doing so, the Israelites have violated the very first commandment they were given. Exodus chapter 20, remember when we studied this, verse 1 through 3, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who... who? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Guess what they do right off the bat? They violate the very first commandment God gave them. And the position of that commandment in the list of the other commandments of the law suggests that Israel's acknowledgement of the Lord as her deliverer is foundational for the law. By denying that God had delivered them, the people in effect undermined the foundation and the inference confirmed as Moses shatters the tablets. What we find later on in chapter 32 is Moses is going to shatter the tablets and by he's doing that, he's showing that they have violated the very essence of the commandments God had given them. 
Not only did they attribute worship that belonged to God to a golden image, they also offered burnt and peace offerings to it. Just so you know, that's a direct violation of Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, where offerings, peace offerings and burnt offerings were supposed to be made to God. So the comprehensive nature of their failure to honor the Lord is astonishing. They have actually gone against everything that God had done for them. And in the face of Israel's brokenness, God then indicts them. That's what we see in verse 7, 8, and 9. So they say, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They built an altar. They make a proclamation. Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. They offered offerings up to it. The people sit down to drink and rose up to play. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, go down. Notice what the people said to Aaron. Up, make us idols. Notice what God says to Moses. Go down to them. So while they're rebelling, guess what God's doing? He's sending He says, go down for your people whom you, oh, (laughs) go down for your people, Moses, who you brought up out of Egypt. Uh, (laughs) In their rebellion, God says, Moses, these are your people. No, I don't believe he blames Moses. What he's saying is when it comes to covenant agreement, they're not acting like my people. So here, Moses, they're yours. That's a scary thing for God to go, you know what? You're no longer mine. He says, Moses, go down because your people who you brought out of Egypt. Listen, because of what they've done, guess what? The covenant deserves to be broken. And for God just to say, you're not my people anymore. I'm done with you. Notice what he says. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. The Lord practically turns the nation over to Moses. The covenant has been violated again. The Lord even highlights how quickly they've done it. How quickly they've turned aside from the way God commanded them. He calls them a stiff-necked people, which is something you should never want to be called. Stubborn, hard-headed, unwilling to bend. Israel, he says, is a stiff-necked people. This is a terrible story, right? So far, this is terrible. But what God's actually doing is he's being gracious to point out to them that they need a rescuer. They need to be redeemed. They are stiff-necked people. They're never going to do it themselves. They're never going to save themselves. They're never going to find anyone else who can rescue them. There's only one redeemer, and it's God. So in his grace, he's exposing that. He's exposing that they have blown it. They have rebelled, and as such, they deserve punishment. God's indictment of them is they're not mine, they're yours. Verse 9, 
finally, God pronounces his intended judgment. And he makes it clear in verse 10. Read these words. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. You know what God says he has the right to do? Let his wrath burn hot against people who have rebelled against him and consume them and start over. (laughs) Right? So much for the Hallmark card God that we like to serve, right? Make every day a great day, right? Every day is a Friday, everybody, huh? This is tough stuff. This is, this is wrathful God against sin, so much so that he says they deserve to be obliterated, snuffed out, and God says, I'll start over with you, Moses. That's what they deserve. That's his intended judgment against them. What a frightful place to be, right? Let no one in the room say sin is no big deal. It's such a big deal that God's wrath deserves to burn against it and consume it. And all those who do it. And he told them, here's the thing, he told them what the curse was before they ever did it. It wasn't like he hid it from them and then they're like, well, we had no idea that this was the punishment. When they entered into covenant together, God laid out the fact that there were consequences to violating the covenant. But what we cannot dismiss is that God's intent to punish sin finds its basis in his righteousness and his faithfulness to the blessing and cursing that accompanies the covenant agreement. If God didn't do that, he would be violating the covenant himself. And they knew it all along and still rebelled against him. It's amazing. Even when you tell us what we're supposed to do, we don't like to. So we see how great the rebellion is. We see God's indictment of the people. And if that's where the story ended, it would be a terrible story and none of us would be here probably. But it doesn't stop there because what the golden calf incident does is shows us God's preparation of a mediator. Having pronounced his judgment due Israel for her sin, it seems like nothing remains but for God to exercise that judgment on them. And yet, what we find in verse 10 is something implied in it. Notice what it says in verse 10. God says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I consume them. What is that implying? What does that verse imply about Moses? Go ahead. So, right, so no, 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 you're on it. You're, 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 you're sniffing it out. Right, because God says, let me alone. That implies that if Moses stays, what? Right, because God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn. What's he saying? He's implying that if Moses stays, there could be a different God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot and I might consume them. What's God saying in that? He's implying that there's still hope. That if Moses stays, something could be different. Oh. (laughs) Yay, God. We need him to let someone stay. 
and talk on our behalf. Because what was Moses doing with God up on the mountain? He was interceding for the people. He was standing in the gap between God and people. And Moses was representing the people to God and he was representing God to the people. And if there was no representative between us and God, guess what? We'd be not left with nothing but his wrath, do our sin, and we as guilty people who deserve that wrath. But God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot. What he's implying there is he's saying, if Moses stays, there could be something different. Oh, see, see, sometimes in the Bible, you got to look for that glimmer of hope that's in there, right? Because it seems all bad until you see that one little ray of light shining, and that ray of light was going to be Moses. Not because Moses was great, but because God was going to provide him to the people. The implication is perhaps that God's wrath could be alleviated if Moses stayed. It's going to take something, right? That maybe Moses alone could stand between the holy wrath of God and the covenant people of God. And that Moses would be the in-between that could keep the wrath of God from being poured out. Just so you know, I don't envy Moses' position. It would seem to me to be a very, you got to be very careful in this position that he's in. So, how is he going to begin his intercession? How is Moses going to begin to communicate with God when God says, my wrath should be poured out on these people? Leave me alone that my wrath may burn and I may consume them. Verse 11. Here's the beginning of Moses' intercession. Moses implored the Lord, his God. See, everybody else is rebelling. But Moses says, you're still my God. And he said, oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? See, remember, God had said, Moses, these are your people. You brought them up out of Egypt. There you go. The first thing Moses does when he intercedes for the people is he, he comes to God. And he says, these are your people, God. They're not mine. They're yours. Not only that. He goes on and says, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Moses says, it wasn't my power that brought these people out. These are your people and you brought them out. It's important that he mentions this, that it was, it was God's deliverance of Israel from bondage to Pharaoh. It was his mighty hand. And everything Moses is going to base his appeal on is how God has revealed himself to his people. God says he's the one who does this. So Moses appeals to that. His appeal continues because Moses turns to the glory of God's name. Notice what he says. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out and kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses says, what will the other nations think? What will Egypt think, God, if you wipe your people out? What will they think about how, who you are? What will they say about God? if God's people are obliterated at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses says, it's about your name, God. It's about your name not being defamed. And that's important, considering that the Lord communicated to Moses in chapter 7, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people out of the land of Israel from among them. 
Then he goes on to say in verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. He's talking about the plagues. A theologian named Jonathan Master says, to state as Moses boldly does, that God's name would be ridiculed by the very people to whom it had been shown as holy would have been a powerful argument and one which was thoroughly rooted in the Lord's own statements about himself. So the faithfulness of God is seen as the basis for Moses' petition. Moses is relying on the fact that God is faithful to his promises. He is the king. But what is glaringly absent from his petition is the innocence of the Israelites. He doesn't say, God, don't, don't pour out your wrath on them because they don't deserve it. They really haven't done anything wrong. Nowhere in this text is there an appeal to anything within humanity that would warrant forgiveness or God relenting of the disaster he intends to bring. The appeal of Moses is based not on the worthiness of the people, but on the character of God. Look at verse 13. Moses implores God to remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses' petition is based on God's faithfulness, his character, and the promises he's made. What the reader sees here is the grace of God displayed in the fact that he even provides a mediator to stand between him and the people. That he provides Moses. And further, he gives Moses the opportunity to actually intercede on behalf of the people. This dialogue that's preserved for us in the Bible gives us insight into how a holy God relates to his imperfect people. To go even further, it reveals that Moses isn't sharing new information with God. God doesn't need to be filled in on details that he's missing. Moses' intercession is grounded in how God has already revealed himself. So what we see in this picture is that God is far from some confused and bewildered king. Rather, he shows himself to be the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent Lord. Ligon Duncan, who is a pastor down in Jackson, cautions by saying, don't get the picture that Moses is talking God into being merciful. God provided Moses. God taught Moses everything he knows. When Moses wasn't compassionate, God was. Moses learned his compassion from God. And the things that he's giving back to God, he's learned from God. See, this dialogue between Moses and God is actually God's way of showing us how he relates to us. This isn't something where Moses is trying to just simply talk God out of something. It's not simply where Moses is trying to give God information that he might be missing. See, some theologians will hold verses like these and the fact that later on, in verse 14, we're told that God relented from the disaster or changed his mind. Some theologians will use verses like this to teach that God doesn't know everything. That God doesn't know the whole future. 
They will quote chapters like this and say, look, God didn't know what was going to happen. He's learning on the fly. Moses is telling him new stuff. Moses is telling God stuff he's missing. He's reminding God things he forgot. Bogus. God is the omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing king. He doesn't need to be filled in on anything. God's not missing any details of any story. God knows every alternative in the future. He knows every possible outcome. He knows every possible thought, and he plans accordingly. God is not here in chapter 32 of Exodus trying to put together a plan B of how to deal with his people. This is the plan all along. And what we see in Exodus 32 is not God bending to Moses. What we see in Exodus 32 is Moses is learning more about God and how to deal with his people. What's about to happen after this event? What's going to happen over the next few years for the Israelites? Say that again. They're going to wander in the desert. And what's going to happen as they wander in the desert? How are they going to feel about God and Moses most of that time? They know that, yeah, people are starting to die. They start to, say that again. Yeah, feel forsaken. They start to wonder, does Moses know what he's doing? And does this God know what he's doing? What is Moses going to get a long time in the wilderness? He's going to get a bunch of grumbling, complaining, whiny people. And how Moses responds to those grumbling, complaining, whiny people is going to matter. And so in Exodus chapter 32, guess what God's doing with Moses? Teaching him what to do with grumbling, whiny, complaining people. Because what's Moses going to want to do at some point along the wilderness wandering? God, wipe them out. They're going to get to the point where Moses is going to go, you know what would be best for everybody is if you just slaughtered this whole group of people. Start over with me. But what's God teaching him? How to patiently, how to patiently mediate on behalf of the people. What we see in Exodus 32 is God is teaching Moses how to care for his people properly. And God is demonstrating it by himself. He's showing, here's how I treat my people, now you do the same. Because what does God deserve to do to them? Obliterate them. What does he do instead? Because of the mediation of Moses, because of Moses interceding on behalf of the people, we see the compassion of God that he relents from what he was going to do to them. Moses is going to need that lesson later on. Because he's going to need to know, what do I do with these people who just constantly complain and backbite? Oh, they deserve to be punished. But instead, Moses is going to intercede on behalf of the people. He's going to be compassionate. Why? Because he's seen God be compassionate. He's going to be gracious. Why? He saw God be gracious. And can you think of a worse time to show compassion than when they're molding images out of gold and worshiping them? Listen, that grumbling in the wilderness isn't going to seem like such a big deal after what God has demonstrated in this instance. They have broken the fundamental commandment which sets up all the other commandments. And guess what God's still demonstrating? Forgiveness, compassion, hope, intercession. And so God is providing that mediator that they so desperately 
need. Now listen, I can't get in today to all the discussion of relenting and what does that mean? What does it mean that God changed his mind? Uh, Maybe on Wednesday we'll have a chance to walk through some of that if you've got questions. I don't have a whole lot of time to get into that. I can simply tell you that the Bible tells us that God was going to do one thing, but instead because of the intercession of Moses, God did something different. And what God is teaching us is that people need a mediator. Sinful people need a mediator in order to be able to to have a relationship with God. Now, here's the problem. Moses was not perfect. Even he failed God. So even he wasn't a perfect mediator. So Moses couldn't be the mediator that would always deliver. Instead, what God is showing us is that Moses is a picture of a greater mediator who would come, someone who would stand between God and man and would intercede on behalf of the people. See, what we find in Exodus 32 in the need for a mediator is we find Jesus because Christ would be that mediator. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He is the one who petitions on behalf of the people. And where Moses failed, Jesus would not. And as Moses would guide the people for God, he would guide them through the wilderness and bring them into the, to the cusp of the land. Jesus is going to be the one who actually takes them all the way in. Remember, Moses couldn't go all the way into the land. Why? He'd sinned. Guess what? Jesus is the deliverer who can take us all the way into the promised land to dwell with God. You know why? Because he did not sin. Moses had to hand off leadership to Joshua. Joshua was going to take him across the Jordan. Guess what? Jesus doesn't have to hand off the delivering of his people. He brings us out of... Y'all see the picture here? I hope y'all see it. Because what God is teaching you is that Exodus 32 isn't just about some people out in the wilderness who got to the bottom of a mountain and started making a calf and needed to be redeemed from it. It's pointing you to Jesus because what Moses failed to do perfectly, Jesus did do perfectly. What God has given you in Exodus is a picture of what he does spiritually. That God takes people who are in spiritual bondage to slavery, to sin, And God breaks the bonds of the chains of slavery to sin. He sets his people free. He brings them out of slavery through the wilderness into the land which was representing God dwelling with his people. And where Moses failed and Joshua failed and David failed, we needed to have a mediator who would be able to get us all the way out of bondage and all the way into the presence of God. And Jesus is that mediator. He is that king. He is the priest. He is the deliverer who brings God's people all the way through. Oh, the picture of Jesus we get here is there. There is no one like him. There is no one else who can deliver us this way. Only he can do it. And how did he do it? He did it by dying on the cross in your place for your sin that you deserved. You deserved the wrath of God poured out on you. I deserved the wrath of God to burn hot against me. I deserved to be consumed because of my sin but because of what Jesus did. Instead of the wrath of God being poured out on me, the wrath of God was poured out on him. 
And on the cross, Jesus paid for our sin and our shame and our guilt. And he set us free from bondage to sin. And he brings us into the dwelling place of God. Oh, the good news. We need a mediator. And I'm thankful that Jesus is that mediator. Which means I don't need another I don't need another mediator. You don't need another mediator. You just need Jesus because he's the one who is able to bring you all the way to God. See, Exodus 32 is teaching us while our rebellion is great and God's judgment against our sin is just, praise be to God alone that he provides a mediator who rescues his people. I pray that every one of you in this room knows Jesus. And I don't mean knows facts about Jesus. I pray everybody in this room personally has repented of sin and trusted in him because that is the only way that you can ever be with God. It's the only way you can ever be forgiven. And if you think coming to church and you think giving money in the offering plate or you think going to Sunday school is gonna rescue you, it won't. The only thing that matters is do you believe Jesus is the only payment for your sin that covers you? And this morning, if you have not trusted in Jesus, don't you dare leave here until you have. Don't walk out these doors uncertain of whether you have trusted in Christ because it is the only question that matters. When we stand before God, it won't be what did you believe about that? What did you believe about that? What did you believe about that? It's going to be did you trust in Jesus or not? And I hope and pray every single one of you is trusting in Christ for your sin, that you might be forgiven. And Christians in the room, we have a great mediator we get to talk about. Because guess what your neighbors need? Guess what your family needs? Guess what your friends need? Guess what your coworkers need? Guess what your friends at school need? They need to know that there is rescue from rebellion against God. There is rescue and forgiveness from our sin. They need to know that Christ is the one who redeems, and that is the only thing that truly matters. And we get to tell them about this Jesus. My prayer is that every one of us is trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And as Christians, we are bold proclaimers of the fact that we have a redeemer, we have a mediator who has paid everything so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus alone deserves praise and glory forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you and I thank you that your word tells us that you are the king that we so desperately need. You are the mediator that we must have, and God, I thank you that by your grace, you didn't leave us stuck in our sin by ourselves with no rescue, but you sent your son Jesus to die. He was the deliverer that Moses was shadowing. He was the one that we'd been waiting for, and because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can truly be forgiven of our sin, and your wrath is no longer upon us because he paid for it in his own body. Oh Lord, I pray that you are glorified today. I pray your name is exalted. And I pray that every person in this room is confessing that you are the king and trusting in your sacrifice on the cross. Because Jesus, you demonstrated that only you can bring spiritual life because you didn't stay dead. You rose again from the grave. And you are alive today to show that you do have the power to conquer sin, Satan, 
and death. No one exercises power over you. I pray, God, that this morning everybody within the sound of my voice will know that Jesus is the King. Know he is the Redeemer. Trust in him. Repent of sin and find forgiveness that is only available in him. And Father, help us as Christians this morning to see that we have a great story to tell, that the Redeemer has come and he is a rescuer of the broken. Oh God, in this place this morning, help us to respond to you. God, if there are people here this morning who need to trust in you, I pray that you'd give them the courage to step out and to say that they need you. Father, I pray that as Christians, you'd give us a joy that cannot be eclipsed by the circumstances of our life, a joy that is founded in the fact that we used to be dead in our sin, but now we're alive evermore. May that be our boast. May Jesus be the praise of our lips. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.